spend a minute or two kind of going over again what we're going to be doing this semester, something a little bit different from what I've ever done. Um, we're going to be spending the entire semester looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. Um, we are um, a number of reasons for doing this. Probably the, the most important reason for doing it is in addition to, to what we'll learn about Scripture and, and about the Gospel of Christ and about so many other things as, as we do this. Uh, one of the primary reasons we're doing it is to, is to see, to study a prime example of what influence Christ and the Gospel of Jesus Christ has in the lives of people. And this is certainly very evident in the uh, life of Paul. We're going to make an attempt to, to give attention to chronology. We're going to, to uh, uh, look at all the major events uh, in his life that are uh, talked about in Scripture. We'll look briefly at the various epistles that he wrote. See, not only did Paul um, greatly ha have a tremendous impact upon the growth of the early church, um, spread of the gospel, um, particularly among the Gentile world, but also among uh, Jews as well. But he left a tremendous imprint on the scriptures of the early church and upon our scriptures, of course, too, because ours, theirs uh, are ours. Um, so we'll look a, a little bit at these various epistles. Uh, a, a lot of space is given in scripture to... Uh, to the Apostle Paul, more than to any other one individual, uh, uh, with the exception perhaps of Christ in the, in the New Testament. Uh, in Acts, Luke devotes much of his space there to, to Paul, his conversion, his journeys, and so forth. He wrote uh, at least 13 of the epistles of the New Testament, uh, an additional one if you attribute uh, Hebrews to him. And uh, We'll, we'll look at his life as recorded in uh, Acts by Luke, but we'll also harmonize that, see how that harmonizes with the various epistles that he wrote. We'll try to do a lot of things. I already told you a story. I didn't mean to, but I said last week that I'd have a printout for you of the, of the, uh, date, of the kind of the dates of the various time events in his life, and I'll get that done. I didn't get it done. Uh, for you. I thought about it last night, but I didn't have a printer available, and so I'll try to get that done. Try to get it done and get it to you by, by next week. But I think it'll be a, I hope it'll be a, a, an interesting study and one that we'll all benefit from. We're talking now, and we'll spend the rest of the day talking about his life before his conversion. And, I, and my uh, intent is to get through with this so that beginning next Sunday, we'll actually look very closely at the conversion of Paul. So if you want to be studying ahead this week, you might want to look at the, uh, 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 the recordings of his uh, uh, conversion. That would be in what, Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, principally. And you can look at all of those and, and other, run other references relating to them in preparation for that. But we began last week, of course, by talking about just starting with the very basics. Uh, when we're first introduced to him, he is, he's, he's called Saul. That was his 
Jewish name, of course, given to him by his Jewish parents. But he had another name also, and that name was Paul, or from the Latin Paulus. And interesting, well, first of all, uh, from what I can read, that was one of the more popular names among Sicilians. Um, And interestingly, it was a name which sounded very much like the Hebrew Saul, a name which when spoken sounded pretty much like the um, Jewish name of Saul. Um, I'm of the opinion, and, and some are, and I, you know, what do I know, but I'm inclined to believe that both these names were given to him at the time of his birth, or at least in his, in his uh, childhood. Uh, Paul would be one name which, uh, by which he would be known among the Gentiles. And, but, of course, Saul would be the name that he would use uh, among the Jews, and, pro- and principally the name that he would use when he was uh, young, and, and especially when he was among the uh, Gentiles. Subsequently, or later in life, he would assume the, the name of Paul, um, and he would do this likely to indicate himself as a friend and as a teacher to the Gentiles. When I think of that, I remember what he said in the book of 1 Corinthians, you know, when he said, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I may win some. He didn't mean that he would become or do things that are wrong, but within the realm of expediency, he would do whatever he could to identify with people so that they might be more favorably disposed to hear his message. And so... um, uh, he will he he will eventually assume that name. There are all kinds of ideas about why he uh, had the uh, used the name Paul. Some you remember we said last week that Paul means little or small, and so some are uh, believe that uh, that he assumed that name because uh, as an expression of his humility. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15 and 9, he talked about how that he was the least of all the apostles. Um, so some think that's it. Others assume that, uh, I believe that he assumed that, uh, that name because of, of his diminutive stature. He was small, a little man, it, some think. And you remember we talked a little bit about uh, his physical appearance and what little evidence we have of that and how even though it's not very reliable. Still others think that he assumed the name as a uh, compliment to Sergius Paulus, whom he met, you remember, on the island of Cyprus and and became a convert. Um, But we'll look at that a little bit later on, and there's a phrase there that I I just believe that it was was probably a name given to him, uh, another name given to him at birth or shortly after birth. This was common among the Jewish people and had been for generations to have a Jewish name and another name that they would use uh, in their interactions with the uh, Gentile people. Passing on now from the discussion of his names, and we'll come back to those as we get uh, more into his journeys and so forth, let's talk a little bit about his education. 
When uh, Paul makes his defense before his countrymen in Jerusalem, the record of which is in Acts chapter 22, he tells them that though born in Tarsus, he had been brought up in Jerusalem. Here's the way it actually, the verse actually reads, Acts 22 and verse 1. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, uh, but brought up in this city, that is the city of Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this, der- this very day. Now, he must have been still a boy uh, when he was removed from his place of birth in Tarsus and, and taken or sent to Jerusalem to continue his education there uh, in, the, in the city of, uh, in the holy city of his, of his fathers. Very likely he would remain at home as most Jewish boys would at least through the age of 12 where there were certain instructions that would take place. It would be during that time that this, uh, this, th- these boys would begin to learn this trade that we talked about, that all Jewish boys uh, would learn. Not necessarily to make their living at that, but I guess to have something to kind of fall back on, which is, which is not a, which is not a, a bad thing. Um, but he was then taken probably shortly after the age of 12, to the city of Jerusalem where he studied at the feet of, uh, uh, of Gamaliel. Now, this is interesting to me. <clears throat> Here is one who, after his conversion, would strongly resist the encroachment of Judaism on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here he is in Jerusalem now, studying uh, at the feet of one of the most eminent of all the doctors of the law. But now, before we completely get away from Tarsus, we do need to remember that Tarsus, uh, his hometown, contributed to his education as well. He was a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, on several occasions, and yet his birthplace was uh, the Gentile city of Tarsus. He refers to it in Acts 21 and 39 as He said, I'm a citizen of no mean city. Tarsus, you'll remember, was celebrated as a a seat of uh, of Greek literature and and philosophy. Uh, Some believe unparalleled, even with a greater reputation, some think, than that of Athens and Alexandria. we may have said last week it was here in Tarsus, no doubt, that he acquired uh, knowledge of the Greek language, both written and spoken. And also, he no doubt at there gained at least some knowledge there of Greek authors and of Greek philosophers, which uh, enabled him and equipped him later in life to deal with the learned Gentiles that he would meet. I'm thinking particularly, as you may already be thinking, of when he was in Athens. And uh, the Bible says that he would reason with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And then eventually when he was taken to the Areopagus and when he spoke there, he made mention of 
some of their poets. And so he had a knowledge uh, of Greek culture and of, and of Greek writers and philosophers and such. And he would use that knowledge to his benefit as he proclaimed uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, as we have said uh, already, uh, he would have learned while there in Tarsus the trade of tent making, which uh, was a, 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 a very peculiar to that particular country in as much as they made a cloth, you remember, called Sicilium, made from a goat's hair, and very likely he not only learned that trade, but learned it using that uh, particular thing. But not only was he educated in the Greek culture to some extent there, whether in some formal schooling or, or whether just growing up in that culture, um, but he no doubt also even there uh, was influenced, not only by his father, his own immediate family, but likely other Jewish leaders in that area, perhaps in the synagogue and in other ways. So his education had begun there in Tarsus, and, uh, but it was continued shortly, likely after the age of 12 uh, at, in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Um, now, in Acts 26, I want to read to you, if you want to open your Bibles there to verse 4. Acts 26 and verse 4. The scripture says, I'm reading here from the King James Version first. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. Now it sounds like from reading that verse as it reads in the King James, it sounds like that, he, that he's saying... Uh, my manner of life is known from the beginning, spent, among, uh, spent from the beginning among my nation at Jerusalem. And it seems that he's mentioning only Jerusalem. And maybe that's what he's doing, and maybe he has reference uh, only to his education from the time that he arrived in Jerusalem, because he would still have been a fairly young man, and, and, and maybe he refers to the beginning as the beginning of that more formal. But that may not be it at all. The American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, International Standard Version, and maybe others, I checked these three, all read this way. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and at Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. These uh, translations include the word and, which is found in some of the best manuscripts that we have. Like, for example, the Alexandrinus, the Vaticanus, the Sinaiticus, uh, Sinaiticus uh, manuscripts, all have this word and before Jerusalem. And the significance of that, as indicated by the translation of the American Standard and these others, simply means that he's, what he's saying is that, that, from the, that my, uh, my manner of life, from my youth, spent 
from the beginning among my nation, and here he would be referring to his people uh, at Tarsus, and then at Jerusalem as well. So it would cover his entire life and, and uh, the influence of his own people for his entire life, beginning at Tarsus and then continuing uh, at uh, Jerusalem. But he, he, he spent time studying at the feet of Gamaliel. Um, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was an eminent doctor of the law. Uh, uh, he was the one, you may recall, who advised the council uh, wisely to let the apostles alone in Acts chapter 5 when they were about to kill them, if you remember, when they wouldn't stop speaking about Jesus. And, and he advised them, he said, for if this counsel or work be of men, this is Acts 5 and verse 34, if this work be of men, it will come, uh, come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found to fight against God. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But he was the son of Rabbi Simeon. Who remembers Simeon? Remember Luke chapter 2 when Jesus as a baby was taken to the temple? And Simeon held him at eight days of age. This was his father, and he was the grandson of the, of the famous Hillel. And uh, so he, he had an, um, a rather illustrious uh, heritage. He was president of the Sanhedrin during the reign of, of uh, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius Caesar. He died, uh, uh, well actually I, I've got to check this out. Uh, I've got two different readings here. One source I consult said he died 18 years before the fall of uh, Jerusalem last night late. I read another, and it said he died 18 years after the fall of Jerusalem. I don't know that it's all that significant either way, but we'll, we'll check that. Uh, his counsel now that we mentioned a moment ago in chapter 5, that leave them alone, and if, and if, uh, if, if what they're doing is of men, it'll come to naught. Um, that counsel was not given because of any leaning that he might have had for Christianity. But it was because of the opposition that the, uh, of the Sadducees in the case. If you read the context in full, the Sadducees were taking a lead on that occasion. And uh, the uh, Sadducees, you remember, differed from the Pharisees in that they what? Didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in the angels and the such like. And so Gamaliel... Um, uh, uh, who was a Pharisee, used this as an occasion, apparently, to jab a little bit, take a jab at the, at the, uh, uh, at the Sadducee. It, it, it may also indicate a, a, a little bit more of a judicial um, a spirit, a little bit more of a tolerant spirit than some, but, uh, but you'll, you'll remember that later on when... Uh, Saul becomes involved in the persecution of Stephen, uh, Gamaliel doesn't have a whole lot to say in, in, in restraining him on, on, that, on that occasion. Uh, but we may say a little bit more about that later as well. But uh, 
Saul had an ardent spirit, a zealous spirit, and more and more became involved in persecution. And, and uh, one of his primary teachers, his, his principal teacher apparently was Gamaliel. It may be a case of student going a little bit beyond a teacher, his own ardent spirit. You know, that happens at times. But whatever the case, um, he, he was influenced by Gamaliel. Um, let's talk a little bit about, having looked a little bit at his persecution, let's talk a little bit about his, uh, at his education, let's talk about his persecution. After spending some years in Jerusalem, it went on how long, by the way, remember now, we, we said last week that he was, he's believed to have been born about the time Jesus was born somewhere between 0 and 5 A.D. And he's believed to have been, and remember these dates may differ a year or two or three, depending on who you're looking at, but he's believed to have been converted at about 36 A.D. So, um, if he came to Jerusalem at 12 or shortly after, and if he's converted at 36, there's 24 years in there to be accounted for. It's not likely that he spent all of that time in Jerusalem. He may have spent a great portion of that time studying at the feet of Gamaliel, but, but it's believed that after spending some years in Jerusalem as a student, we don't know how long, he returned to Tarsus, his uh, hometown. During this time there, he may have engaged for some years with a synagogue there or something. We don't know, but we find him back in Jerusalem again very soon after the death of our Lord. And it's uh, at this time, no doubt, that he learns all the particulars about the crucifixion of Christ and the rise of this new sect referred to uh, as the, the Nazarenes. He may have heard about it while still in Tarsus. That may have been one of the reasons why he came back to Jerusalem, but no doubt when he did come back there, he learned all the details and all the particulars. For some time after Pentecost, uh, Christianity had quietly been spreading its influence in Jerusalem. But then an individual named Stephen, kind of burst on the scene, I guess you might say. He was one of the seven deacons, you remember, that were chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve tables. And uh, at some point, uh, after being appointed to that work, he began to give a more public and a more aggressive testimony about Jesus and the fact that he was the Messiah. And this, as you can imagine, caused great excitement among the Jews and, and caused a lot of disputation to occur within the synagogues. And of course, persecution began to arise against uh, Stephen and against the followers of Christ uh, in general. And Saul of Tarsus became involved in this persecution. And you kind of see the progression of his involvement, and we'll note that as we go along. And eventually, from that start, he became the active leader 
of this persecution which was designed to, to exterminate uh, Christianity altogether. According to Acts 7 and verse 58, Paul, Saul was uh, uh, yet a young man when the church began to experience this sudden growth and expansion in Jerusalem. Remember now, this growth resulted uh, greatly, uh, uh, partly or mostly because of the appointment of these men to free up the apostles who were uh, uh, then able to do that for which they had been trained and appointed and selected and to do that which others could not do. They could do a lot of what they could do, but not all of what the apostles could do. And so uh, uh, that, and then not only that, but these six men at some point, as, as is true here of Stephen as we're going to see, they themselves became more than table servers, uh, more than ministering to the, to the poor widows. They began to speak and teach themselves. Stephen and Philip are specifically named. And so in this regard, Stephen uh, had special power and, and inspiration. And, and here's what's said about him in Acts 6, verses 8 and 10. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. That's verse 8. Verse 10 says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Acts uh, 6, verses 8 and 10. Now in verse 9, in between those two verses, uh, we read that a number of people from different places were disputing with Stephen. And one group that's named uh, is those of Cilicia. Uh-huh. Were among those that were arguing, that were disputing with uh, Stephen. And obviously, I think we would, we would think that Paul would have been among that group. Whether at that early stage he took the leading role in those disputations or, or whether as he did later when he just stood by and, and, let, and, and stood guard over the clothing of the people who stoned him. But he surely would have, was involved in some way because we do see him just uh, a very short time later uh, keeping the clothes of those suborned witnesses who were required by the law, Deuteronomy chapter 17, to cast the first stone. The law required that if someone accused someone, and based on those accusations, they were convicted and stoned. They had to be the ones to, to cast the first stone. And, uh, and uh, interestingly and significantly, in verse 1 of chapter 8, the writer says that Saul was consenting unto his death. I'd like for us at this time to, uh, to read a few verses about Stephen and all that happened, and I think it'll help us to get even a better feel for what was going on and, and for just how uh, Paul was in, uh, Saul was involved in this. Let's begin. We won't read, of course, you know the, the sermon or speech of Stephen is recorded in, in the seventh chapter of, of Acts. We'll begin with verse 51 as he kind of brings the, his uh, speech to a, to a conclusion. 
Acts 7, beginning with verse 51, and we'll read a few verses here. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, not sitting, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man, young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, He fell asleep. And verse 1 of chapter 8, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I don't know about you, but I can't help but wonder if Paul had some misgiving. When he stood there and witnessed the stoning of Stephen, and when he heard him say, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. I wonder if someone had told him about the words that Jesus had uttered on the cross similar to this. But how could how could one witness that? And one's heart not be touched or melt at the idea of one being treated such, praying for those who were so treating him. But uh, I don't know whether he had such misgivings or not. But it seems that stern bigotry stifled all those thoughts if he had them. Or perhaps he did uh, experience such stirring. Uh, within his heart. But if he did, he just increased his zeal in persecuting the church to stifle, to smother those feelings. That's what we do sometimes, isn't it? When, when we 
have an inclination toward a better uh, nature, sometimes we'll just uh, smother it with some kind of activity that, but in any case, uh, Paul uh, stepped up, stepped up his persecution against the church. Um, the King James Version says he made havoc. The English Standard is more near the literal translation. He ravaged as, as a wild beast would ravage its prey. He ravaged the church, entering house after house and dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. Um, but this persecution fails to accomplish what he and the Jewish leaders had hoped for. For it says, they that were scattered abroad went what? Everywhere preaching the word. And the anger of the persecutors just grew more and more fierce. And so hearing that some of the fugitives had taken refuge in Damascus, uh, Damascus, uh, Saul obtained from the chief priest letters authorizing him to proceed to that city. That was a journey of about 130 miles, which would have taken him about six days, likely, to make that trip. And the, and the Bible says that Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Acts 8, verses 1 and 2. Went to the high priest and asked... Uh, uh, for him, uh, asked for him for letters that to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any uh, in that way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it wasn't enough just to persecute the church in Jerusalem and scatter people abroad. He wanted to stamp it out. He wanted to destroy the effort, and so he began to make this journey. And the scripture says as he neared the city of Damascus. Perhaps it was in, in, in his view. Uh, that country over there is not so much like ours. It's more like the west, part, western part of our country. It was years before I went to West Texas or even out beyond. I remember Brother Connolly, when Kay and I were in Mobile, working on Mobile Christian. We had a preacher there at Pleasant Valley from, who came from Texas, and he always complaining about, you have no sky in Alabama. And I thought, well, we got as much sky as anybody else has got. But I just didn't know. I'd never been out to West Texas. You know, we have trees all around us. And you go out to West Texas, and you'll see what he's talking about. From horizon to horizon, there's nothing but sky. So it may have been kind of like that. And, and what I was about to say was, when I used to travel out there with Dave, We'd be sometime late at night after leaving one appointment. We'd be headed toward a city, and I'd you'd see the lights to that city. And I'd say, well, it's just we're about there. And David would say he's more knowledgeable of that area. And he'd say, oh, no, that's 30 miles away. I said, David, it can't be. It's just right there. But he was right. It'd be 30 miles away, sometimes more, sometimes further than 30 miles away. And so maybe Paul could see Damascus. But anyway... He said, a great light shone around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And we're going to talk about his conversion beginning next week. But you just think about that. You just think about that. Um, Here was a man persecuting the church, thought Christ to be an imposter. He really believed that. And all of a sudden, he comes face to face with the one he'd been persecuting. Well, let's note something about his character before we, the bell rings. We've already seen he was zealous. Philippians 3 talks about concerning the law, he was blameless. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. But he did this with a pure conscience. He said in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. In Acts 23 and 1, he said, Earnestly beholding the counsel, men, brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. In other words, he was ignorant of his blasphemy and of his persecution. He wasn't innocent. But he, he, he did it in unbelief. And he was doing what he thought was the right thing to do. And he spoke about that in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, beginning, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now that, that distinguished him, about to walk away, that distinguished him from those you read about in Matthew 12, who committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, for which there is no forgiveness. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They saw that he was performing miracles. They said, this man doth cast out demons. They didn't deny what he did. They didn't not believe what he did. They saw what he did. They believed what he did. They understood it, but they attributed his power to Beelzebub. Paul wasn't like that. He didn't have that spirit where he would deny what he actually was looking at. He had been a blasphemer. He had been a persecutor. He had consented to people being put to death because of their faith. But when he saw the Christ, what did he do? He believed. And he spent the rest of his life a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love to read Galatians 1 verse 13 beginning. For you have heard of my conversation in, in time past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. Uh, there's another verse I wanted to read. Um, In Acts 22, uh, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
in one synagogue after another, Acts 22 and 19, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Um, he said he did it ignorantly and, un, and in unbelief, as we've already seen. Here's the verse I was looking for, Galatians 1, beginning. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, now get this, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because have you ever thought about how difficult it must have been? Have you ever thought about how difficult it must have been for the Apostle Paul after his conversion and when he returned to Jerusalem? Well, even there in Damascus, he had gone to have people in prison. But when he returned to Jerusalem and no doubt met Some who's, who, who had, he had you know, imprisoned some or maybe consented to the death of some. And yet he stood and preached to them the Christ that he had once denied. Um, a remarkable turnaround. But you know how he felt about it? He said... For I am the least of the apostles. Now he, he, he said that because of what he had done. Oh, he, he knew he had been forgiven. It wasn't that he didn't think he had been forgiven. But you can be forgiven and still carry with you a burden of what you've done. And for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that worked in me. One last verse. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, through, uh, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ. Well, uh, every aspect of Paul's life prior to his conversion would uh, help prepare him for his work. Uh, three great aspects of the world's culture of his day came together in Paul. Roman citizenship, Greek culture, and Jewish religion. And Paul used all of these things as he went forth uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think I read this verse to you last week, but I, I like to read this, 1 Timothy 1 and 15. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. Now get this, and let's make the application. That in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Could it be that God is using you and me 
and others as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him unto everlasting life. Uh, Paul, the example of Paul's life was then and has continued to be through the centuries a great testimony of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, so that's one of the reasons we're looking at this. We'll begin next week now by looking closely at the conversion of this man, Saul of Tarsus.